Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and we're coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International. And I have the great privilege today to welcome to the program Carl Olson. Carl, what is your official title, my friend? My main work is as editor of Catholic World Report for Ignatius Press. I've been working for Ignatius Press since 2004, and I initially began as uh, editor of their first uh, online magazine, Ignatius Insight. And then in 2011, I was asked to take over Catholic World Report, despite having absolutely no um, <laughs> qualifications uh, to do that. But um, at that point, Catholic World Report actually went from being a, a, a print magazine right. to being online only. That was a way of you know saving money just because the, the costs of publishing postage were too much. And so since 2000, early 2012, I've been the editor of Catholic World Report. And I also uh, do writing uh, for a number of uh, other publications. Um, and uh, for, for several years, was it nine years, I wrote the uh, opening the word column for our Sunday visitor newspaper, which was really a, a lot of fun. Yep. And, um, and then I've written some books, uh, including a uh, at least one that we'll probably mention here here today. Uh, okay. So, yeah, good. And uh, you know, Carl, it used to be that when somebody came up with a brand new joke in Boston, it wouldn't make it to Los Angeles unless it was a really, really good joke, right? Because there was a natural winnowing process as that joke was told from one person to one person to one person. And it, you, that used to exist. And, and to a certain extent, that existed in the publishing world, too. If you wanted to publish a book, to get it out there, there were channels. The Internet's changed everything. People coin yeah. a, a joke in Boston, and it's on the Internet before it even tells anybody. I mean, that's how quick it is. And the reason I bring that up is, to me, that's why publications like the one that you do on the Internet is so important to have that in the midst of all that cacophony of opinions. Well, one thing, you know, people, we've had a number of readers who have said, I really, you know, I really miss the print publication. Now, at the time, I think that uh, Ignatius Press stopped publishing Catholic World Report. Um, I think it was being published ten times a year, so it wasn't quite a monthly. Uh, but, but the thing is, with a especially with a news journal, I it's very difficult now to have a monthly news journal unless the goal is to write articles about kind of big picture issues that are kind of timeless. Because if you're trying to commentate and and write about things as they're breaking news as they're breaking um it has to be really on a, on a daily it's a you know it's a 24-hour news cycle now i think i think it cuts two different ways on one hand it's 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 great having then the website where we do stuff in that manner and we're able to re react and respond and we have articles very quickly about things that are going on a great example would be how we covered the the two synods that took place in 2014 2015 we just had a regular stream each day of, of news one thing though that happens is we don't you oftentimes don't get the kind of reflective pieces right. do step back and say okay let's we got to take a measure of what's going on and so that i think sometimes has been hurt by this instant gratification of, and and social media which i'm not against social media it's just that um i i still personally like you know reading kind of real books in my hand 
uh, and so yeah, forth. Me so, too. <laughs> you know, it's a balance. Uh, we benefit from the tool of the internet, but um, hopefully the the tool of the internet doesn't control you know control us. And and you of course you've written about this in your most recent book. I think really uh, with a lot of wisdom and insight. So it's it's a fascinating thing. Yeah, it's you know God gave us these gifts planted the seeds of these technologies in creation. They were there in the garden, you know, and, and kind of on a time release uh, method, if you will. And But the question is, are we as a culture mature enough to use these gifts for their intended end, which right. is holiness and drawing us our attention to God? And just like in the Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, well, we can misuse these technologies also. And we're seeing it, but that's why I, I applaud you in your work. And I think, you know, a number of things I like about Catholic World Report is, and I look forward to reading it, because, you know, with us getting the, the if you if you have an app in which you get your news, you're probably checking it morning and evening. I don't mean you, Carl, but anybody. Morning right. and evening or a couple of times. So you're getting it as soon as it happens, and that's, we're so used to that. But to have the, your your book, your magazine take the step back so that we can almost look forward to the fact that somebody's going to take all this data that we're getting constantly bombarded at and you're going to you're going to give us a summary for example and and you and i've talked about this our our holy father pope francis is occasionally putting out comments that need explanation and and as soon as they hit the airwaves there's a hundred different opinions so it's good to have the the bigger reflection that your publication gives us. Yeah, no, it's it's a very important thing because um, I th think a lot of times these things go out into the internet. There's a bunch of reaction; people kind of uh, weigh in, and then it's on to the next thing. And uh, you know, one of the things I've always tried to do as an author uh, in books and essays is try to connect and show the bigger picture in some way. And of course, uh, there's a lot of subjective elements to that. There's a lot of different perspectives. Um, it's not a, a, a science, um, but I think it is kind of an art, and I think it's a, it involves, I think, seeing the deeper underlying issues, the foundational issues that are constantly there. You know, before we started recording, I had mentioned to you how, for me, Scripture is such a source of, of great solace in in the difficult times we live in. And you know, I, I've also come to realize that every single person who's lived has lived in the most difficult time in human history, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the first century, the 12th century or today, uh, the time that we live in is always the most difficult time because that's where we're, we're at. But scripture gives us a perspective. You know, I mentioned that I'm teaching a Bible study in Ezekiel right now. Um, and it's, it's a remarkable book, especially when you dive in really deeply and to see what was going on and the, the crises and the call to faith, the call to holiness, all these things that are, are so applicable today are right there in Ezekiel, who's writing at the end of, you know, the, the 500s B.C. In, Babel, in Babylon. I mean, you couldn't yeah. get further from seemingly from where we are today. And yet he's, he addresses the exact same things. And that also, you know, brings me to this. You know, we're going to be talking about Peter, the, yeah. the epistle of Peter. Same thing, Peter, in writing these. For, and of course, I know there's there's a debate about whether Second Peter was actually written by the Apostle Peter. And but just for the sake of our discussion, yeah. you know, Peter, in writing these epistles, is addressing Christians who are 
struggling, they're being persecuted, they're coming under fire, there's confusion about certain things that they believe. There's and, and Peter again gives them he gives them the big picture context. I think one of the great strengths of both first and second Peter is he pulls back and looks at the big picture of salvation history. And he focuses on certain themes, of course, but it's really about enduring during dark, dark moments and looking to the ultimate to the ultimate goal. And um, that's what I find throughout Scripture constantly. And you know, what greater thing to hear and to read and to think about uh, at any given point in time? Because that's that's where we're at. We're always at those yeah. difficult moments, and we live at a time when. Because of the internet and social media, there are a gazillion opinions out there about how to interpret and apply scripture into our lives. Uh, and as you said, for the last 2,000 years, there's always been uh, conflicting opinions, but even now it's uncountable. Uh, and so in the midst of where Peter was writing, and I agree with you, we'll avoid the you know, the, the textual criticism issues and just assume this is uh, the Apostle Peter that's writing this. There's no reason, I think, to, to doubt that. But in the midst of a difficult time, not only is he keeping their hopes alive, but in the passage you've chosen for us to look at, he's pointing to them to such an amazingly hopeful, optimistic experience of God out of the midst of their turmoil. It, it truly is amazing. For those of you that haven't listened to this program, the the episodes that we're doing now at Deep in Scripture, we're focusing on hard verses. And our point is to, to, to select verses to demonstrate that they can be difficult depending on your particular tradition that you're coming from as you interpret Scripture. And the question is, does your particular tradition give you the, the tools to understand some of these scriptures. For example, I have to say, Carl, that this particular verse was a verse that I kind of kept up on the shelf when <laughs> I was a Presbyterian pastor because I was not sure how to teach this. So um, tell the audience what verse you've chosen and why. Well, I've chosen Second Peter 1, Four and really one, two through four, right at the beginning of, of Second Peter, and it's there that he, you know, the he he talks about being partakers or becoming partakers of the divine nature, and um, you know we'll, we're, we'll dive into that. But it's it's interesting that right off the bat he mentions this, and yet this is really the only place in the New Testament where we have this particular phrase partakers of the divine nature. Uh, and I, I'm with you. When I was a, an evangelical, and of course I was never a, a minister, I was uh, went to Bible college for a couple of years, uh, studied quite a bit of scripture. Uh, this is one of, I could list a number of passages <laughs> where, oh, I mean, I, I read it because I, I, but I didn't really read it or, or, or stop. I mean, there were certain things that I would focus on, uh, but this was a passage where that was just part of the you know, part of the wallpaper, so to speak. Um, it's up on the shelf, like you said. Yeah. You read it, you move on. Um, but it, as I began to recognize that the Catholic Church was quite a bit different than I had been taught that it was, and I began to look into Catholic teaching and theology, this scripture, along with others, similar ones, started to come to the forefront. But it's such a striking 
phrase. It's yes. absolutely, again, unique in the New Testament. It doesn't appear anywhere else uh, in this this form at all. Um, and in fact, it's it's interesting. That it's so unique that the even the early church fathers who wrote quite a bit about what we call in the East, we call theosis. In the West, we call divine sonship or, or deification. Uh, that is sharing actually in the divine nature of God, sharing in the Trinitarian life. Even a lot of the early fathers didn't really dive into this verse and, and, and grab, grab onto it until well into the second and third centuries. It took a while. And then in the East, you start to see it become something that's more focused on. Early on, it was more... Uh, John's writings, Paul's writings, where they talk about being a children of God or being adopted sons of God. Um, but this is so, I mean, I just, it's, a, it's a great phrase, become yeah. partake of the divine nature. And it's, it's also the fact it's almost, almost a tease, right? <laughs> it's almost like Peter just kind of mentions it in passing, and yet you're kind of going, wait a second. Partakers of the divine nature, like what, is, what does that actually mean? And, and it's fascinating to think about, Carl, if... I mean, it's one thing for us to remember historically that it took about 200 years, as far as we know, before the church starts fine-tuning its understanding of how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one God. And it was 200 years before Tertullian, as far as we know, coined the word Trinity, and then it took a while into the fourth century before the bishops gathered in council said, this is the way we believe it to be true. So we're talking the fourth century. And then same thing with divinity of Christ and, and uh, all these issues. And Peter is coining the phrase that we will become partakers of the divine nature in the first century. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an idea of profound, deep theological proposition that isn't something that some Jesuitic philosopher in the 15th century came up with. This is, say, this is Peter in the first century, the fisherman. Where did he come up with this idea? Yeah, that's, by the way, you bring up something I want to touch on really quickly, which is um, I, I, a few years ago, I taught a Bible study in First and Second Peter. And one thing that I kept coming back to with the class was we get this image in the Gospels, and, and it's a proper image, a right image of, of Peter being brash and bold and sometimes kind of clueless. And he makes big mistakes, <laughs> um, big mistakes, like, you know, telling Jesus, oh, no, you're not going to go up and suffer and die. Of course not. And for, for which he gets rebuked and be called as called Satan by by Christ, but Peter is he's not, you know, he's not a mystical theologian, so to speak, like the Apostle John. I mean, when you read the prologue to, to John's Gospel, it is just it's mind blowing. Right. I mean, I've studied it many many times, and it's always new things there. Yet Peter was, in his own way, a remarkable theologian. And what strikes me about this is how he says this as though it's matter of fact, which yes. which suggests this is part this is part of what was accepted. It wasn't like he's introducing, you know, if he were to introduce this, oh, by the way, what I want to focus on today is you're going to be a partaker of the divine nature, you know, through baptism, by becoming a member of the body of Christ, and, and now I'm going to go on and explain. No, he just mentions it in passing. It's part of the fabric, the tapestry of the faith that he 
This has been given, of course, by Christ, that he, as the first pope, the head of the apostles, passes on, teaches and preaches. Um, you know, Peter was not, uh, even though he wrote uh, these letters, Peter was not primarily really a writer in the way that maybe Paul was. So he preached, but it would be, so be fascinating, you know, to be able to go back and see what was Peter on a daily basis preaching. And I think that this yeah. was a topic that would be part and parcel. And, you know, to put it in the context of First and Second Peter, Peter is always pointing these suffering Christians. Um, and I think it really, he probably is really aimed at Christians in Rome as well mm-hmm. as the surrounding area who are suffering. And he's always reminding them of what the ultimate goal is. And the ultimate goal is, and and part and parcel of that is being a partaker now of the divine nature, sharing in God's own life. And it's remarkable too, he would say this because the Greeks, of course, and the Romans would have a very different idea of what that might mean. Um, and so he clearly says it with a confidence that his readers have an idea of how he's saying it in a in a very Christocentric perspective. Uh, and of course, it does come in a very you know, he speaks there. In fact, the sort of that those two verses, you know, he says, "May grace and peace be multiplied to you, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises." That through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. So you see right there in that, just those three verses, the theme of enduring, of pursuing, of being called to glory and excellence, holiness, escaping from corruption. These are big themes. I mean, you read mm-hmm. First Peter, it comes up a, a great deal, these uh, these various themes. And by the way, very, very quickly, in, the, in our book, I mentioned the book, which is called to be the children of God, the Catholic theology of human deification, which I co-edited with Father David McConey, which um, published by Ignatius Press earlier this year. Uh, in the book, and I wrote the section on the New Testament, I have this great quote. And the quote is this, this passage, which I just read, is the most important biblical foundation for the doctrine of theosis usually translated divinization or deification, the belief that we become somehow, through God's grace and mercy, partakers of the divine nature. The remarkable thing about that quote, Marcus, it was written by an evangelical theologian, <laughs> not by Catholic, not by an Eastern Orthodox, and by the you know, way, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, you know, totally agree on, on the basics of this belief. This was written by an evangelical theologian just a few years ago in a book that I quote, uh, titled Images of Salvation in the New Testament by uh, InterVarsity Press, just published in 2010. So, you know, for those who are listening who maybe aren't Catholic, this is a this is a topic, a subject that has become of great interest to many evangelical scholars. And the reason why, the number one reason why, is it's biblical. Yeah. It's scriptural. It's right there. You know, um, one of the things that helped me uh, get a grip on verses like this was discovering in my journey into the Catholic faith through reading the early church fathers in this idea that's clear in the catechism that our Lord Jesus delivered a deposit of faith to his apostles. 
that he promised the Holy Spirit would help them to remember and uh, help them understand and then protect and preserve, which is what Peter was called to do, as well as his successors. Not to come up with new ideas, but to hold on to, as, as Paul says, and you know, stand firm on that tradition that we've received, hold on to it. And which goes along with what you said, that it's not that Peter was coming up with a new idea, but he was expressing something that his audience knew and agreed with, understood. The question was, wasn't trying to convince them that through the divine power granted to us, as he says in the beginning of verse 3, that we will become partakers of divine nature as if that's a new idea. No, the problem was verse 5. This is the truth. And so now giving with verse 5, this is what we've got to do. We, our faith has got to be more than an intellectual thing. Right. Yeah, and that's you bring up a, a really, really key point. This is something that was striking in, in leading the Bible study through First and Second Peter years ago. Is that, and you see this also in in First uh, John in really striking ways, which is that doctrine, what we believe, is directly related to how we live. There, there's no separation between what we accept uh, as the 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 taught truth the doctrinal truth of the church and then how we live and and John puts it very starkly he says if you don't follow the commandments of God you're not a child of God yeah. period now one way to interpret that would be well then you have to jump through hoops you have to follow the rules no what he's saying is if you truly are possessed by the Holy Spirit if you are possessed by divinity that is God's power then you will live accordingly. But if you're not living accordingly, then you actually are not possessed. And I, I use the word possessed here because when Peter mentions partaking, um, what he, one thing that we emphasize in the book is that we ourselves do not possess the divine nature. That is, we don't grab onto it for ourselves. We actually are possessed by it. God makes us his children of God. God always initiates. You know, this is a something I learned early on. One of the foundation principles of Catholic theology is that God always initiates. Even when we think that we're the ones kind of setting out to be a spiritual seeker or whatever, that's because of the prompting of God, whose grace we can never we can never fathom how great God's grace and love is. And so the divinity possesses us. And then we are able to partake. We are able to participate in the divine nature. And we believe that this is uh, done through through baptism, that by being baptized, we are actually then made children of God, filled with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then living by the power of the Holy Spirit, something that we see, you know, of course, throughout, throughout the New Testament. Um, and so there's, and since we're possessed by the Holy Spirit, then we are to live in a certain way in accord with uh, what God has revealed, especially and specifically through through Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, one thing I point out in this, this uh, my, my section on, on Second Peter in this book, is that while the term partakers of the divine nature only appears here in Second Peter 4, the reference to glory is really interesting, hmm. because hmm. in 1 Peter 5, 1, 
And, I, and it is interesting. I, did, I looked at a lot of commentaries when I was working on this chapter of the book, and I didn't see anybody making this connection, but that in 1 Peter 5, 1, he writes, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. And the word, the Greek word there used as a partaker in 1 Peter 5, 1 is the exact same word as used in 2 Peter 4, a partaker of the divine nature. In 1 Peter 5, 1, it's partaker in the glory. But what is that? What is that glory? Yeah. Ultimately, it's God. Yeah. yeah. It's God yeah. himself, right? In, in um, just following on that a little bit, uh, 2 Peter 1, 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Majesty. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's probably referring to something that happened to him in the past, which was the transfiguration, when he saw Christ in his glory. He saw the glory of Christ. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely correct, because that comes up in Peter's remarks uh, in John's remarks in his gospel, we see that reference either explicitly or implicitly to that, to the transfiguration and the transfiguration. There are many reasons for the transfiguration, but, you know, Tom, St. Thomas Aquinas emphasized that one reason for it was so that they would be, they would know the glory that they were called to because they were about ready to go through the darkest moment of their lives when Christ would be arrested, tortured, and, and crucified. And so it was to give them, again, that big picture, that sense of the the end goal. And the transfiguration was a, a taste of that, a foretaste of that glory. And of course, um, when we receive Holy Communion, we participate already now, and we have a foretaste, a real taste of the reality of Christ now, in the, in the drudgery of our daily lives, in the darkness that sometimes seems to overcome us right now. And so all these things start to tie together. When we realize to what, what we're called to and see the trajectory as difficult as it can be from, our, from just from our, human, our human perspective, then we're able to live the way that we're supposed to, uh, again, animated by the, the power and the, and the grace of, of the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's to me is what's, what's fascinating is how there's such an incredible dynamic at the heart of all of this. Uh, explain a little more, if you would, how you came to understand this process. Because from my background, brought up Lutheran, later a Presbyterian pastor, my understanding of my relationship with Christ was more like you know, I'm totally depraved. There wasn't a thing I could do, but somehow in the mercy of God, before the creation of the world, he knew me, called me, and then through the death of Christ, I've been covered with his glory, his righteousness. It isn't me, I'm still manure, covered with his. And so for the rest of this life, I am, I am to live in gratitude of that, but the idea of of growing in grace, the idea of growing to be, was hard to understand mm -hmm. from my particular perspective. I, I would point real quickly to, to a 
two or three things for me. One, what the seeds were placed, I'm convinced of this after you know reflecting on it over the years, in sitting in a little Bible chapel in Western Montana, which my father had co-founded with a number of other men. And there was one elder in particular, Lynn Osland, who I'm still in contact with through the, the glories of Facebook. <laughs> um, one of his favorite themes when he would give sermons was that we are we are adopted by God. He, I remember him specifically giving several sermons on this. Now, he didn't put it the way that I put it. He didn't talk about us participating. In yeah. But he really focused on we are really adopted children of God. Now, this, this stuck with me. I mean, it was like a burr in the saddle because uh, I had uh, several friends growing up who were adopted. I was around their families, and I saw that they were they were as much the the sons and daughters of their parents as the biological children. Um, and it took years for this to kind of come to fruition. But I, I saw that adoption wasn't just some kind of judicial or juridical reality; it was a lived relational reality. And the second part of for me was going to Bible college and taking several classes with uh, Professor Ken Ginter, who taught mostly Old Testament, but he. He just blew my mind. I mean, I thought of the Old Testament as a series of stories about people like, you know, David and Goliath and, you know, all this, right? He showed me that it was the story, of course, of God's covenantal love. And he he went through the covenants. I and mean, he was like Scott Hahn before I started listening to Scott Hahn. <laughs> and he really did. He was, a, he was a covenantal theologian. And what was interesting about uh, Professor Ginter was that he – he didn't actually have a degree in theology. His his degree was actually in uh, ancient Middle, you know, Near Eastern history. So he really focused on the the workings of the covenant, and then showed how, you know, the prophets articulate the covenant, and they they explain and interpret the covenant. The historical books show how the covenant is lived out in reality. So then, when he finally got to the new the new covenant in Christ, all of a sudden this all started to fit together. And the thing that he really brought home was it's a relational reality it's a familial reality so then marcus says you know when i when then you get to you know scott hahn and i and i told scott you know the key for me was listening to the 12 tape series he did which was actually a collection of classroom lectures called the catholic gospel hmm. it was basically his class on, class on soteriology he taught many many years ago at steubenville and i listened to that about 10 times and i just made all these notes and i was buying all these books <laughs> and really it just it started it just made sense to me because i had been raised similar to you i wasn't raised in a calvinist background but it was a very it was about the the juridical reality being yeah. covered by god's grace etc cetera, etc cetera. and i knew there was something more and through mm -hmm. these different things i began to see no the the christian life is about family. God himself, in a sense, is family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are called to enter into that and share in that in a way that's just completely radical. It's not about being a good person. It's about being truly godly. And being godly is more than just doing good things. It is about being God in a certain qualified sense, not by nature, only Jesus Christ is God by nature, you know, both man and uh, God. But we, by grace, are actually called to be godly in a way that's really beyond what, unfortunately, many Christians see it as being. I think we we sometimes settle. We settle for, oh, okay, I, I'm a Christian because I'm a, I want to be a good person. That's not enough. 
you want you should be a Christian because you want to be a partaker of the divine nature, a child of God, a son and daughter of God. That's the that's the bottom line. Yeah, I remember two two other hard verses that I I, mean, I preached on. I believe them to be besides scripture, but very important. But I I couldn't go very deep into explaining what they meant, and that was when Jesus says in John 15 that we are to abide in him and he in us. And what did that mean, given my theological background? Abiding means continuing, remaining. It involves effort, staying in. And then 2 Corinthians 5.17, that we're, if we're in Christ, we're new creations. Well, what does that mean? New creations. And that, to me, connects with this becoming partakers of the divine nature. We're different, not because of anything we did, but because of what grace has done in our response to grace. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's exactly it. It's it's God who initiates. It is God who transforms us. And then we then abide in him. We grow in that grace. We have the, the the amazing thing about God's grace and mercy is that he gives us a free will so that we can choose to to actually grow and blossom and be transformed even further. That's what he desires. He doesn't, you know, God's love is never coercive, of course. It's always one of invitation. Um, and so, you know, we're begotten as children of God, something that John talks about in his prologue and talks about in First John 3. And then, then charity or love causes us to persevere in that divine sonship. Um, and then we grow. You know, it's just this thing that continues to develop and abound even more. And you see it in you know, the lives of the saints. I mean, the way it just... It, it kind of, it's like a, a, a charity bomb that just explodes, you know, and you see love. And the, and the thing is, too, it strikes me is how one thing that's encouraging about looking at the lives of the saints is how the personality of the saint is never diminished. It oh. comes to fruition, right? Right. And so you can be a really humorous person, a serious person. You can be like... St. Francis, who was almost a little out of his mind at times. You can be very quiet. You can be very outgoing. Um, you know, we become what we're called to be, as John Paul II liked to emphasize. And that's what really partaking in the divine nature is, is we are we become what we are called to be, and we're called to be that in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And the great hope of this section, then, is where he says that through these promises— we may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion. I mean, that's descriptive of our world. It's exactly what's passion. Uh, people driven by passion, what they want, their, their drives. And as a result, it's the corruption around us. But Peter says we can escape from that and become partakers of the very divine nature. What do we do? Well, Carl will close with this. For this very reason, we make every effort to supplement your faith. It isn't faith alone, excuse me. It's faith supplemented with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, 
and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Carl, verse 5 and 6 and 7 added on to this, your verse, seems to describe a journey, right? A journey of conversion. I, um, even back in in Bible college, I became kind of fascinated by those verses. Even though I kind of didn't know what to do with verse 4, Five, six, and seven to me indicated that there was a, a logical sequence, a relationship between the way that we grow in virtue, knowledge, self-control, godliness, and of course it ends with with love because charity, love, God is love. That is the the, the complete and perfect self-gift of one self to another, and it is. It's a, it, this really is is a beautiful biblical explanation of the spiritual ascent. Yep. Um, and it's not that we just, you know, we get, it has to go necessarily in this, this sequence. I think what Peter is trying to show is this is so organically interrelated. All of these things are interrelated. You can't have virtue without proper knowledge. And by knowledge here, he's not talking about necessarily head knowledge. He's talking about a relational knowing, yep. self-control. You can't have self-control uh, without godliness and godliness without charity all these things are integrated here um and it all flows from this foundation of being of partaking of the divine nature and a quick note about you know passion passion is something that controls us and it controls us in the wrong way whether it be lust or greed or whatever it is whereas possession by the holy spirit leads to peace joy virtue um, it's what we're supposed to be. So Peter likes to contrast passion with partaking of the divine nature. And I think it's a great way to think of, uh, of those two things and, and the, the contrast between being a child of God and being, as John puts it in his first epistle, a child of the devil. You know, yeah. it's, it's very, it is very black and white uh, at the end of the day. These are the two choices that are given, given to us. Carl, reminded me of a joke. I probably have said this on this program, but it was a one I thought was always a funny joke about a very elderly Lutheran clergyman who was on his deathbed and his family was gathered around and he turned to his sons. He says, I know that the Lord will welcome me into his kingdom because for my entire life, I've never done a good work. And, you know, the idea of the the hyper emphasis of faith alone. I'll never do a good work. And the reason that, Carl, you do your work and I do I my work with the Coming Home Network and you do it is because we want people to see, for many people to see that there's more to our following and enjoying Jesus Christ than merely faith alone. And if we stop there, that's like stopping with the very first phrase of, of verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, period. No, there's there's so much more, which is all grace. And and the whole thing is what is meant by a partaking of the divine nature. Every step in verse 5, 6, and 7 is an experience of the divine nature. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. What's the name of your book again, Carl? Called to be the children of God, the Catholic theology of human deification, and it's through Ignatius Press, and it's uh, 
took about five years to put together. We have 14 different authors. Uh, Dr. Scott Hahn wrote the foreword to the book. Uh, Father David McConey, who's a great Jesuit priest who teaches theology and patristics at St. Louis University. He was the co-editor. Um, I wrote a couple chapters. I wrote the chapter on the New Testament and also a chapter I think it's very fascinating on this whole theme in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Oh, sweet. But the book also has chapters on the Greek Fathers, the Latin Fathers, St. Thomas Aquinas, um, the Carmelite tradition, Newman, um, John Paul II. I mean, it's really, it's set up historically. It follows basically 2,000 years of teaching on this and how how the church has, has ever deepened our understanding of this, even though sometimes it's maybe not presented you know, evenly everywhere. I mean, yeah. I meet a lot of Catholics who aren't familiar with this idea. So that's one of the reasons we wrote the book, of course. We want people to see that it's part of the tradition. It's integral. It's biblical. It's part of what we're, we're, we're supposed to know and to be. You know, that's the thing, to be children of God. And like Second Peter 1, 5, 6 and 7, it's important for us to grow in these virtues so that we can partake in this great gift of divine nature. One other thing, let's say the audience has never read Catholic World Report, where would they go? They can go to just catholicworldreport.com. It's completely free. We have uh, new features almost every single day. We have uh, sub-features, um, news briefs. Um, we probably, I estimate that we actually, you know, we're talking about the print magazine. The online edition actually gives people probably at least three to four times as much material as they were getting with a print edition. And it's, you know, it's free again. And, and uh, each year that we've had online, we've had more and more readers. And um, so we always encourage people to come check us out on a, on every, a daily basis if possible. All right. Again, the Carl Olson, thank you so much for joining us on Deep in Scripture, Carl. And uh, God bless you and your work. And thank all of you for joining us. Again, you can check us out at deepinscripture.com or you can go to chnetwork.org and find out more about the work of the Coming Home Network International. God bless. See you again next week.